a lot of the things and a lot of the traditions that the Christian church does is to help us relate to God and connect with God and to make things real. Um, so they're not just pretty sense and pretty things. They're reminding us that we have a real connection to a real God who really feels what we really feel. Um, so in light of that, um, we have three candles up here. Uh, the candles in the Christian tradition have always represented um, our prayers and our um, souls really crying out and rising up to God. So um, as we light these candles, um, and they're going to be here for a while. They're not just going to be here for today. Um, but I, I pray that you see that these candles represent the scriptural, biblical call to lament of the church. Um, and that as I kind of talk through what these three candles say, because there's scripture written on them, um, we as a church and we as individuals get a little bit braver to do what scripture calls us to do. So Don already spoke about lament, so I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the biblical understanding of lament. Um, but I will say that true lament in scripture, true lament honors hope. It honors real hope. False niceties actually desecrate the name of God's people. God's people and the blessing that was given is actually the name Israel. The name Israel means to wrestle with God. God saw wrestling with him as a blessing, not as a curse, not as something uncomfortable, not as something to run away from. So the four steps of lament are actually us engaging in our identity as God's people and they are a scriptural call to do these four things. So the candles and the cross actually represent all four, so I'll talk through that really quick. Um, Don already said um, to turn. To turn is the first one, and the scripture that's on the first, the scripture that's on the first candle says, God, listen, listen to my prayer, listen to the pain in my cries. Don't turn your back on me just when I need you so desperately. Pay attention. This is a cry for help and hurry. This can't wait. Psalm 102, 1 and 2. And then the second step is to complain, which I think is the hardest thing for our church, not just us, but for the church to do. But the second step of scriptural, biblical call to lament is to complain. So the second candle says this. Have compassion on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? Return, O Lord, and rescue me. For the dead do not remember you. Who can praise you from the grave? I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. That's Psalm 6, 2 and 6. The second, or sorry, the third um, biblical aspect of lament is to ask. And I think the most appropriate example in scripture of a lamenter asking is actually when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks something so provocative and scandalous of his father. 
And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Mark 14, 36. Finally, after we've turned to God, after we've engaged, after we've complained, after we've asked what our heart really wants to ask, then we trust. And we wait. So the final candle is about waiting. Psalm 136 says, I am waiting for my Lord, like a guard waiting and waiting for the morning to break. Do you guys ever feel sad? What are, what are times that you typically feel sad? When do you feel sad? When you go to a funeral, preach. When do you feel sad? When part of your family dies and you don't get to see them anymore and the casserole that they always made or the gift they always had at Christmas isn't there. Yep. Um, you can feel sad for all kinds of different reasons. You can lose more than just people. So uh, when I was a freshman in high school, my parents decided to move all the way from Indiana to Las Vegas, and I lost all of my friends and my family for like three months. And I would go in my little room, and I would cry in a corner because I thought God had up and abandoned me. So I know what it is to experience loss, and I wish I could say to you that you're going to go through life and everything following Jesus is going to be wonderful. And it's going to be sunshine and roses and smiles. But there's always a crucifixion before resurrection. And in this life and in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. In 1997, I applied to three doctoral programs. And as I got the first rejection letter in the mail, these are things people said to me. Oh, don't worry, Max, you'll get into the other two. You're a shoe in Max. Guess how many programs I got in? Zero. They were wrong. They were wrong. I had no backup plan. Uh, in 2011, after a year-long battle with pancreatic cancer, uh, my father died. And these are some things people said to me. Uh, God must have needed your dad. Somebody said that to me in the chamber, a chamber of commerce friend. And he meant well, he did. But it took everything in me not to just bellow out. I needed him more. Like, what are you talking about? Are you nuts? <laughs> God didn't need nothing. Okay. Um, then another one, at least you got to grow up with a father. At least he got to see his grandkids. What a blessing. And so can we admit that People can say the darndest things. Can, can we all acknowledge that people can say the darndest things? So how do you support a friend? How do you be a good friend to somebody who's experiencing loss, who's having to grieve, who's going through a hard time? Um, Grown-ups, you guys have faced things like divorce, the loss of a job, a medical condition that wasn't easily cured, haven't you at times wanted to punch some of your friends? Sometimes, yeah. Um, so we all, here's the caveat I would make. We all handle pain and suffering different ways. So kids, parents, you're going to have to figure out among your kids where your kids fall on this. And you're going to have to figure out for you how you fall on this. Some people in the face of loss 
want to be alone. So they kind of curl away. They kind of isolate. Uh, They will say to themselves, man, nobody understands. Nobody gets it. You don't get it. You don't know what I'm going through. Um, Some of us get stuck and we have this loop that goes over and over in our head and it's like we can't get over it. Um, And we can't make that loop stop, that loss hit again and again. And then some of us like react just in explosive ways uh, and we succumb to hopelessness and condemnation. Sometimes we'll even bring it upon ourselves. I did this, I messed up, like (laughs) this is all my fault. Um, But can we agree that leaving people alone, uh, preaching to them or telling them that they're overreacting isn't helpful? (laughs) Okay. Um, If ever there was a person in the Bible who suffered, it's Job. Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost all of the things that he had. Um, He lost his wealth, every significant relationship except his wife who told him, curse God and die. Get it over with, buddy. (laughs) Curse God and die. And so I want to read a couple of passages uh, from Job. The first is Job 4, verses 7 to 9. Stop and think, do the innocent die when the upright have been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of his anger. And then Job 5.17. Consider the joy of those who are corrected by God. Don't despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin, O Job. These are Job's friends talking to him. And they basically say to him, you brought all of this on yourself. You did this. You're sinning. And Job in chapter 16 says this, I've heard it all before. What miserable friends you are. He called him out for being not really good friends. So Job kind of gives us a picture into how to be a bad friend, but I want to point again to Jesus. And I just want to review a story I've been in many, many times from John chapter 11. Jesus is a better friend. Jesus is a better friend. And in John chapter 11, something happens to a really good set of friends of Jesus. So Jesus has these really good friends, Lazarus, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They live in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. So every time that Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem, he stays with his friends in Bethany. It's like if you had friends who lived in Orlando, and every time you went to Disney World, you didn't stay at one of the Disney resorts, you stayed with your friends who live in Orlando. It's exactly the way it worked with Jesus. He stayed with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Well, Lazarus becomes sick. And so Mary and Martha send a servant to go find Jesus who's teaching in one of the towns to tell him, hey, your friend is really sick, come to Bethany. So Mary and Martha have an expectation that Jesus will drop everything, come and heal their brother, Jesus' really good friend. Only Jesus delays two days. And by the time he arrives to Bethany, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus probably died within an hour or so of after the servant being dispatched to go find Jesus. Both Mary and Martha accuse Jesus of the same thing. They say this, Lord, 
If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I simply want to focus on the response of Jesus, and that's found in John chapter 11, verses 33 and following. And here I am in Mark. I need to go over to John. John chapter 11, verses 33 and following. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put my friend, he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have helped Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell's going to be terrible. And Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory? So they rolled the stone aside. And Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it aloud for the sake of these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Jesus listened to Mary and Martha when they laid at him all the blame. Our brother would not have died if you had been here. Come on, is that not an accusation? Is that not an accusation? So that tells you, O team generations, that you can accuse God and he's big enough to take it. Jesus listened. Jesus wept. Jesus was moved with compassion. That's that Greek word, splazgitko, <laughs> where it says he was filled with anguish or righteous anger. That's a combination of a lot of emotions. So I just want to remind you that Jesus is God, and everything that Jesus does, God does. Everything Jesus says, God says. Everything that Jesus feels, God feels. And Jesus is not going to leave you alone. See how much he loved him, they say, of Jesus. So in light of what we see in Jesus, a compassionate friend, I want to offer just three suggestions for how you and I could be a good friend to someone who's going through a tough time. The first is to shut up and show up. Jesus showed up. He was late, okay? Jesus was late. <laughs> But he showed up. He showed up. And he listened. So be present. Let him speak. Let him vent. Resist the urge to correct their errant theology. Lament is biblical. Secondly, offer specific help. I know I love to ask people, is there anything I can do for you? But when I have my A game on, it's very specific. So when you have a friend who's going through a tough time, it's a specific thing like, hey, Don, I'm going to Kroger next Tuesday. What can I pick up for you? Or, hey, Don, I'm taking the kids to, it's not Boyd Orchard anymore. What is it? Evans Orchard. I'm taking the kids to Evans Orchard. I want to take your kids along too. Uh, let me know. Do you want to come along or would you enjoy the quiet better? Just let me know. Like, those are specific things that enable somebody to go, okay, yes, no. So offer specific help. And then lastly, Commit to the long haul. 
Um, it's always the second Christmas, the second birthday, the second holiday. It still stings. I'm just going to tell you, it still stings. So my last bit of advice is just a reminder of how the Holy Spirit works. So most of all y'all in this room have the Holy Ghost living inside of you. And from time to time, you'll be driving along or you'll be doing something and you'll think to yourself, you'll just be thinking of somebody. And sometimes it's somebody in this church family, they'll just come to mind. When that thought enters your brain, do something in ten, the first 10 seconds if you can, even if it's just writing a reminder in your phone, call so-and-so, text so-and-so. But if you have the freedom and your, your job is such that you can pause for a moment, reach out, send them a text. Hey, I'm thinking of you. Chances are that's the Holy Spirit just working the way he works in the body. So, and follow the 10 second rule. Um, if you find yourself thinking about somebody, just reach out. When my dad died in 2011, uh, I still was about as emotionally aware as a rock <laughs> at that point. Um, I'm, I'm growing and learning and changing. And I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, the points now where I pray for you, I find myself occasionally crying in the car, right? And so if your pastor can cry for you, uh, who's emotionally inhibited, I guarantee Jesus is weeping. Jesus is with you. Jesus is heartbroken. Jesus is there. Jesus is a good friend. Jesus is a good friend. So I don't even know what's next on. Oh, that's right. I'm, I, there's a, you shouldn't just take your pastor's word for it. You should take other people's word for it. So Don and Danita, is that right? Come hither. I have a microphone somewhere that I've sat down. I'll look at you. So the first question is simple. Tell us what you lost. Tell us about the loss, the big loss. And then secondly, tell us, even if it took, ye it wasn't until years later, how did you see Jesus either in that or through that? How did you see Jesus? Where did you see Jesus? Okay. Okay, so by the time you get as, uh, the age of Mike and I, you've suffered a lot of loss and have seen God move in a lot of ways. But this story that I'm going to share, I've shared before, and it's the one where everything was most plain to me. That's why I really saw it. Um, so Mike and I, sorry, I did warn you. <laughs> Mike and I had been married about five years, had never gotten pregnant. Um, and then I started having some odd physical things. So I went to a doctor and the doctor's like, dude, you are 11 weeks pregnant. How could you not know this? I'm like, well, I'm <laughs> new to me. So I was pregnant and it was a miracle because it had taken five years. And, um, for all we knew, it'd take another hundred, you know, this is, so this is our big chance here. Had a wonderful, wonderful glowing pregnancy. And we were at a time in our small little church about the same size uh, where there was been a dry spell, no babies. And so the whole church was excited. You know how ladies are. And everybody was watching and waiting. And then you can see where this is going. Matthew died during childbirth. So we were shocked. And the church was shocked. And the hospital was shocked. And they came in, sent 
caseworkers, social workers, whatever they are, and they set Mike and I down and they said, just so you know, 95% of the people in your situation will get divorced in the next year. We were like, thank you, that is exactly what I needed to hear right now. <laughs> um, okay, so that's what happened and here's what happened next. First, Mike and I lean towards each other, which is obviously does not happen in 95% of the cases. We lean towards each other. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we did not get divorced in that year. <laughs> and uh, Mike would, he would hold me at night and he would pray and I would cry. And he said, Tanita, you have to pray. And I said, I am praying. So that's how we got, and then the church rallied around me with so much love and and they could not say anything to change things they could not do anything they could not fix this but they were there for me and they hugged me and women came up and told me their stories of loss which I'd never heard before and we cried together I would never have heard those stories I had no idea all these women had their own stories uh, and they sent you know I like one of the they shared verses and stuff and one of the ones that of course I really grabbed onto is the one from Jeremiah for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. And I grab that because in these times, if you're going to go through suffering, you're way better to lean into God than to run away from him or reject him. So I held on to that. And when Mike was praying, uh, I think this was before the funeral, he came up to me and he said, hey, I was, you know, I was, I was praying and God told me we're going to have another baby. Because, you know, after five years, we didn't know. We, thought, we have this miracle baby, and now we don't have a miracle baby, and who knows? So he said, we're going to have another baby. And, and God said, we're going to name him David Thomas. And I said, that's not on our list. <laughs> He's like, you're going to argue with God about that? No, no, we'll name him David Thomas. And at the funeral, a young man from our church afterwards came up to me, and he said, uh, I was praying for you, and God told me you're going to have another baby. And I said, when, God? And he told me, in nine months. And I said, God, that's so long. And God said to him, don't worry, it'll go fast. So, and don't you know, nine months later, I was pregnant with David Thomas. <laughs> and due to uh, the way the pregnancy was going in my history and stuff, there came a time where I could stand up in church on a Sunday and say, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, I'm having an eight-pound baby boy named David Thomas. <laughs> it was all just planned out like that. So here's the, here's the things that I learned from this. And like I said, we've been through lots of different things. We all have, but it was so clear to me in this one. The first thing is, you know, you lean into your spouse. You lean into your people. You, you lean into God. You don't reject them. You're not going to get through loss by rejecting. You're going to get through loss by turning to and grabbing. And the second thing is the church has a huge part to play in these things because we can't do anything. We can't say anything, but we can be there. And it's amazing how much it matters just to be there and to hug and to say I'll tell you my story and you tell me yours and we'll cry together and the third thing is in that in every moment God was there with hope you're going to get pregnant again you're going to have a baby it's going to be fine I know the plans I have for you it's going to be fine you'll get through this so that was it that was Um, well, if you've been here a while, a lot of y'all know our story. Um, goodness, 2017, we got pregnant with our seventh child. Um, I had always wanted another boy. I'm a boy mom with girls. 
but I have some sons. I have some sons too. I have two sons. Um, and uh, and uh, we got pregnant, and lo and behold, it was a boy. And we were so excited. Um, we found out on my birthday that he was a boy, so for my birthday cake, we did one of those gender reveal cakes. Made a real big special deal. It was all sorts of fun. Um, but then we went in for our... 18-week ultrasound, and because of my history of always going early and stuff, they always did everything early because I never go full term. Um, and they're looking at him, looking at him, they're looking at the heart, doing all these checks, looking at the heart. I'm like, what's up? They're like, well, um, we're going to come back to that and just we'll, we'll do that a, a, again at the end. And I'm like, okay, I've gone through enough of these that I know this is not par for the course. Um, so they came back. They said he was wiggly. He was not all that wiggly that day. Um, and they're looking at the heart again. And then they finally just stop and they put things away. And I look at them. I'm like, there's something wrong with his heart, isn't there? And they're like, um, I hate to say it, but yes. Yes, there's something wrong with his heart. Um, Michael was diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, coarctation of the aorta, a ventricle septical defect, and a bicuspid aortic valve. So all to say, basically, he had half of a heart, and the half that he had wasn't very good. Um, but you go to the doctors, and you learn, and you do everything you can. And they said with these surgeries, he had an 80% chance he would survive. He would be fine. So, you know, odds are in our favor. Um, we all know they weren't. Um, basically, the doctors say, stats are great, except for when you're on the other side. And we were the other side. And um, after seven weeks of being in the hospital, standing by his side multiple times as he coded, uh, three heart surgeries, um, we lost our boy as he was coming off of ECMO. Um, it was not easy. And we were given the same stat. Most of these marriages will end up in divorce. Um, Paul and I are still married. We're good. It's been six years since we've lost him. Six years this December. Um, but yeah, we, we leaned. We leaned to each other. We learned we grieve very, very, very differently. Uh, <laughs> Max knows he got experience. Huh? Yeah. Um, but we gave each other space for that, and we needed it. Um, and Paul had dealt with surgery and almost passing away on his own when he was a child. So this, he kind of had already worked through a lot of this, but um, I had not. Um, and I was mad at God. And this, I mean, this was God's fault. God could have stopped it, right? I mean, any second he could have just healed him. He could have made things turn. He could have made things go the other way. I stood by Michael's bedside. I prayed, I prayed, I prayed for his healing to the point that my feet would be swollen and the nurses gave up their chair at the nurse station just to get me to sit down. And God did not come through, or at least not in the way that I wanted. And I was just so upset with him. And y'all see, I'm up here with a guitar. I'm music, you know, music. I turned to my music. I turned to my guitar to process, to work through things. And I couldn't. I would pick up my guitar. I would try to sing. And it would just end in tears. I would come here on Sunday morning. I'd try to praise and I would just be sitting in my chair weeping. And thank you to you generations ladies who came and put your arm around me during that time because you don't know how much that meant and how much it really pulled me through. So I thank each of you for that because um, 
the support is very, very important. It's a very dark place when you go through that loss and to not have to go through it alone and have people pulling you and praying you through is truly amazing. Um, a few things on how God, I found God and worked through it. Um, I went, one of my friends had also lost their daughter and it had been a couple years and she was struggling too and she had never been to um, a support group and she came up to me and was like, I want to go to a support group, but I can't go alone. Can you join me? I said, sure. Okay. Well, it's been, it was literally um, the night of the support group was uh, the day before, he, the day before he would have been, we would have been longer without him than we were with him. So it, it was an emotional time. And we were just riding in the car, and we were talking. We were talking about our losses. I knew her daughter. She was, um, all her brothers did martial arts, and she had just started to do martial arts. And so we knew each other pretty well. And um, so finally in the car, I just blunt straight out and said, how do you deal with the fact that God could have changed this, and he didn't? How do you deal with that? I can't. I'm not getting past this. And she said to me, why give up on God now? He's, he's there and he's the end. He's the only hope that we have that we'll see our children again. She's like, don't give up on God now. I've been where you are. Don't give up. And so I kept talking. I kept shouting to God and why God? Why this? Why me? And those feelings of anger embedded in. And Max said something to me that really changed the course. And he's like, you need to forgive God. I'm like, well, I can't f forgive God. He, he didn't do anything wrong. I'm like, God is God. He, if he wants to heal him, he, but he's not obligated to heal him. He's like, you, it's a relationship and you need to work on that feeling of forgiveness towards God so that you can hear him again. And so I was like, all right, I'll give this a go. I'll give this a try. And, um, I would talk with God and say, God, okay, I, I forgive you. This is not what I wanted. This is not how I would have done this. But I trust you. I forgive you. And the more I did that, the feelings of hardness broke down. And I was able to finally hear God. I was with you all those moments. I gave you moments that you could spend with him. And that the time that you had with him. And I look at it now and I'm like, even those times that were hard by his bedside, I cherish that because that is something that God gave me. That is a time I had with my son. And there are still times when, you know, it'll hit like a fresh wave and it still hits six years later. I'm sure it still hits even now. And, you know, those emotions will come back, but God is still here and God is still present. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for him. And I'm thankful that of all things, he provided a way that one day we'll be together with them again. So, a lot of musicians are getting in place. Um, you belong to a church family that recognizes the fact that all emotions are on the table. I grew up at a day and a time when the only emotion that you could show within the church family was happiness. 
Um, and that just doesn't cut it. And so for those of you that are moms and dads, one of the biggest jobs that you have for your kids as they age is helping them to name and know what it is that they're actually feeling on the inside. Um, I like to say to my kids all the time, don't ever give your feelings the keys to the car, <laughs> but you need to know who's in the car with you. You need to know who's in the car with you. Don't let them drive, but <laughs> know who's in the car with you, okay? Um, for me, it's the cross and the resurrection. So I've gone down all the philosophical roads. I've read Richard Dawkins. I've read all the neo-atheists. I've read all the philosophers. And for me, it boils down to the fact that if I were going to invent a God, a God who would become fully human, die a death on a cross <laughs> to, make, to make the relationship work, like I don't even have a category for that. So for me, the cross points to the fact that God doesn't ever take anything light-handed. He rolls up his sleeves and he gets involved and he's with us, okay?